that's the nature of love. Love is like the sun. It doesn't just shine on this shrub and this shrub and this shrub. Like love just loves. And this egoic desire to possess somebody else's love and say, no, 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 no. You only give your scent to me. You only give your sunshine to me. I mean, that was one of the initial things that got me on this path. It was like, all right, I understand that there is no biological imperative from a tribal standpoint. After reading Sex at Dawn, I realized like, okay, we were largely polyamorous in our, from our tribal roots and our tribal ancestry. And I understand love. I understand that love isn't meant to be possessed, that love is meant to be wild well, to the- a certain degree. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with both Aubrey Marcus and Kyle Kingsbury. Aubrey is the founder and CEO of Onnit, a lifestyle brand based on a holistic health philosophy he calls Total Human Optimization. He also hosts the Aubrey Marcus podcast. Kyle was a UFC fighter with 11 wins under his belt and is now the director of human optimization at Onnit. He also hosts the Human Optimization Hour podcast. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul <laughs> Check. It's so funny to be on the other side of the table with you guys. But uh, I've been waiting to do this interview specifically with you two because um, you two are the two people that I know. I mean, there are people out there that are in multiple partner relationships, but a lot of it's kind of dabbling in what I call puppy love. But you guys have, uh, from what I see, you've really like, you're into it enough to have a real legitimate experience of the trials, the tribulations, the the glory, the... If there's a more legitimate experience, I don't fucking want it. Let's yeah, just, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> just, that's, let's just say that. That's, part, right? of the, that's part of the journey, right? Because uh, I'm sure you know from your own experiences, people see you living that way and they think, oh, that's what I want to do. And I get students coming to me all the time going, I want to have two girlfriends or two wives or whatever. And I have a patent answer. Until you can ride one horse really well, it's really dangerous to try to ride two at one time. (laughs) And, you know, I grew up riding horses and rode in the rodeo and I know exactly what that means. Now, they may not, but they'll figure it out. (laughs) So... I, because so many people are interested in this and because – and by the way, I'm with Kyle Kingsbury and the one and only Aubrey Marcus. There's only one Kyle Kingsbury too for sure. And uh, these are two people that I love a, a lot. These are very special people in my life and they're soul brothers to me. These guys are very, very honest and open and don't pussyfoot on anything. So um, – Talking to you guys about this is as real as it gets Um, and because you both know that I've been living uh, open uh, multiple partner relationships for 22 years uh, with my wife Penny and I have two wives. Uh, Angie has been with me for seven years and we've had a child and we're about to have our second child together. So I've kind of actually living a completely second life within the context of my marriage to Penny and I was married for 17 years in a monogamous relationship in my first marriage from which Paul Jr. uh, is the product of and he's going to be 40 this summer. So I've been at this kind of marriage game for a while and life and all that. So the goal today is to share the 
inner realities of this process for everybody out in the world who wonders what is this like and I wish I could do it. And also because of our Christian programming in our culture, it's a very Christian culture, um, when you look at the fact that the average marriage in our in the world today only lasts two and a half years and the average person gets married three times in their life and then you start looking at things like the Kinsey Report and various studies – there's very, very little true monogamy going on but there's a lot of it being kept secret and swept under the table and that as we'll get into is very shadow building and it leads to a lot of crisis and pain and guilt and shame and ultimately fatigue, illness and disease. That's the, that's the fruit that comes out of repression and denial and deception. So one of the things that I want to – talk to you guys about and, and, and because of this is you're doing this totally honestly and above board and that is the only way to really do this and um, gain the fruits of it without playing uh, you know games that ultimately lead to pain for a lot of people and I've counseled many elite professional athletes, very, very famous people who I can't mention for their own privacy but you'd all know every one of them. Um, and one of the most common things I find with elite athletes coming to me with performance plateaus and chronic injuries that won't heal is that they're married. Every one of them has been raised Christian and thinks they are a Christian and some of them have had as many as four women that aside from the marriage that their wife thinks they're in a monogamous relationship. They've often got kids. I've seen athletes carrying four phones each for a specific woman so they know which woman's calling so they can segregate them. Some of them have their own houses, their own credit cards and they're actually living a life where they think that that man is their man and I've seen athletes juggling four or five of these women at one time. So imagine when they come to me wondering why they can't perform well and why they got chronic SI joint injuries and things that won't go away how much internal stress they're carrying trying to live with that many masks on, right? That's enough to wipe a guy out. And the funny thing is, is they come to me because they've heard that I have either two wives or multiple partner relationships and they think I'm going to teach them how to do it, how to cheat better. That's they, they think, how can I keep this secret <laughs> better? The cheat code. And I always look at them and smile and say, you came to the wrong guy. But while you're here, I will, you know, give you a dose of reality and show you how to do what your heart wants you to do honestly. But the question is, are you man enough to be honest? And usually the answer is no. And there is a big problem with males that males in our culture, especially want to have lots of women, but they don't want to share their woman. So it creates a very polarized uh, situation, which is in my opinion, very unfair to the woman. I don't think that you have to share the woman. I think you have to offer her the opportunity to live the way you're living and let that be up to her. Uh, Penny, to my knowledge, has – she's told me I, you're more than I can handle and I don't want any more complications in my life. So I choose to just focus on you and the business. That doesn't mean she doesn't have secrets and I told her, you know, if you don't want to tell me, that's up to you. I want you to just be at peace. But that's my agreement from the very beginning with Penny is let's – make sure that we both agree to let each of us live the way we need to live to feel whole and as long as we wake up in the morning and we want to stay together because 
the love between us is greater than the challenges between us, then we stay married and, and we've been living that way for 22 years and I'm, I can't envision myself with another woman because the one thing Penny has given me is she has allowed me to be in a marriage with a woman that truly allows me to be who I really am and that is a hard thing to find in any intimate relationships is people who will genuinely let you be who you are without trying to coerce you or, or mold you into their idea of who they want you to be. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my introduction is uh, we've just done some of it. I've shared some of my experiences. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about people's opinions because I – as you can imagine, I've been doing this a long time and I've had a lot of accusations uh, aimed at me. I've had many nasty letters written to me from students and the parents of students and the friends and you you name – I've had many long letters from Christians uh, telling me how I'm going to burn in hell and I'm a sinner. Uh, Probably the most common thing I get labeled with is being a cult leader uh, because I have two wives. And I tell people, well, if I'm running a cult, I'm doing a very shitty job because I teach people to take responsibility for themselves, eat well, live well, love well, care for the planet and take responsibility for the decisions they make, which is the opposite of a cult leader. So I've completely failed in the thing I'm accused of being the most. So have you guys had any of these kind of accusations put on you? Sure. Yeah. So you know the the ropes. Um, I've also noticed that the judgments – in general from people about multiple partner relationships are usually a good measure of the level of consciousness they're at. If you look at the structure stages of consciousness and how we grow consciously through our own uh, psychic evolution, um, I found that a person's judgments about multiple partner relationships usually mirror their judgments about abortion, uh, about uh, issues of religion, about vaccinations, about anything, uh, uh, circumcision, almost anything, how they view one. If you structure – if you categorize that in the structure stages of consciousness, their views on multiple partner religions usually are not a structure stage above or below. They're – in other words, the way they see the world is the way they see the world no matter what they're looking at. Have you seen that? Yeah, I mean this is – this is a particularly challenging topic though because people like to put themselves in – the perspective of the person talking so if we're openly discussing this a man can't help but put him in the situation where potentially his wife or his girlfriend is sleeping with somebody else yes so that gets them very emotional yes it does so that will actually drop their consciousness it's a defense reaction yeah it's a defense reaction they'll drop their awareness and consciousness even lower than perhaps their resting rate would be because of the emotional turbulence that it will cause and I found that the people that react that way are often the ones that have something going on the side in the closet. <laughs> and so their their fear is that they might have to meet themselves and their partner. Yeah, You understand what I'm saying? If they're cheating, they don't want to actually conceive that their partner might also be cheating. So as soon as we start having these kinds of conversations, they project an attack on it, which is very much like – a someone who is a closet gay who goes to anti-gay rallies yeah, only later to be found out and then you know the the barn burns down so to speak so um one of the things i wanted to start with is 
Let's begin from the beginning because basically the psyche, as you both know, is, is really a system of archetypes. Archetypes are energy transformers. They're manifolds. They're empty forms. Uh, the archetype is always it's, – it's in quantum in, – in chaos theory, it's called a strange attractor. It's something that draws something to itself. Our first relationship with a woman is with our mother and our first relationship with a man is with our father and our first imprinting about what a relationship is and how it should function is the relationship our mother and father have. So I'd, I'd love to hear from each of you, what was your relationship with your mother like? How did she love you? Uh, how did you learn to love her? How does that relate to the way you love women or you relate to women? And then let's move from there to dad. And then let's move from there to what did your parents exemplify to you in relationship to monogamy or uh, was there experiences where one was wandering or, you know, what was your imprint that you think potentially has influenced the choices that you're making today, if that makes sense to you? So mother, father, yeah, relationship. I'll jump in on this one. I think uh, mother is very, very clear to me. I always felt for for better or worse, however my parents raised me, they always showed me love and I could feel that love. They, they were affectionate. They would hold me and my sister. They would mention how much they loved me all the fucking time. I have many memories of that. There was no shortage of that. Um, I felt a close connection to my mom and I always loved her playfulness. Like mm -hmm. she reminded me of to a fault being a big kid, which mm -hmm. is now something that I, I really try to embody mm -hmm. is taking le life less serious and, and, um, you know, I mean, to this day, she'll be the first person to crack a joke when she enters a room. And, um, you know, so I, and, and really being chippy and fiery, I see so many of those things in my wife, Natasha. And it's funny how that kind of circles. I don't think they look the same, but they definitely have similar personality traits. Yeah. Um, my father was pretty strict. And I mentioned this, you know, a little bit on the, on the show that we did together doing yeah. the hero's journey. Um, but also felt a lot of love from him. And I have a lot of good memories of him, um, you know, throwing the football three flies up to me and all my friends in for an entire day yeah. until the sun went down. And, um, but looking at their relationship, that third imprint where I saw them interact, um, that was more of a teaching on what not to do. You right. know? And, and I had mentioned, um, whatever nonviolent communication is, which is a great book, whatever that is and exemplifies, they spoke to each other the opposite way. Yeah. So um, those were those were all the cues for me. Like, like neither one of them knew how to fold their hand. Neither one of them knew how to say I'm sorry until it was too late. Um, and both had a burning desire to be right, to be yeah. correct. Mm -hmm. And so those are all lessons that I've taken forward because, again, I, my wife is fiery and in a lot of ways resembles my mom. Mm -hmm. Um even though she's her own person. And, and certainly I've, I've felt called to really know when to uh, bend the knee to take a turn from, from Game of Thrones, which we're into. Mm. But just to know like, like when to, to preemptively to come across with a softer, gentler way of communication has been one of the ways that we've kind of bridged that gap and not gone down the same uh, path that my parents did. So – before we move on to Aubrey, if you could share, looking at the way you're living now, if you were to go back to your childhood and look into a crystal ball, what's happening in your childhood that leads to 
Kyle being who he is today in multiple partner relationships? Well, I mean, I, I would I would have to look at that. If there's anything from my childhood that led me to him, who I am today in multiple partner relationships, it's how I treat each individual relationship. Mm-hmm. But nothing from my childhood, in my opinion, let me, of course I can't couldn't possibly. Well, we'll nothing, find but, out shortly. Yeah, but it's like <laughs> there there isn't much from that. You know, my parents didn't cheat on each other, as far as I knew. I find out later that that some of that had happened, but. Um, it wasn't something I was aware of, you know, I think even that, like, this wasn't a concept that I would really become familiar with. I'd heard about people in the Bay Area doing it. It's where I'm from. San Francisco's pretty big community of, of polyamorous people. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until, like, really following Aubrey Marcus and, and uh, you know, Dr. Chris Ryan's book, Sex at Dawn, came out. Yes, and that my was wife a and big I read book it, for And I was too. like, holy shit. Like, it made so much sense on so many levels. And that conversation really became... Uh, the impetus for my wife and I to to start working through a lot of this because everything's a trigger. Yeah. And I think the the more we talked about it and the more serious we got in the conversation about actually doing it, yeah. the more shit that started coming up for us. And it was a, a great way to work through, I want to say a lot of the stuff, but still there's nothing like actually going through it. No, no. Good. That's, that's great. Thank you. And I'd love to hear your story, Aubrey, because <laughs> I haven't really had a chance to talk to you about some of these things. Well, my mother was a, uh, and is one of the greatest examples of unconditional love that I've ever encountered. That's amazing. And it's really, truly, truly remarkable. Yeah. And um, that I had that same thing from my grandmother as well. Mm. Um, not so much with my father. Father was loving, but also very conditional. Loving, I love you if. If you yeah. perform well, if you mm. do this, if you haven't said something that will bring me into a rage. You used to go into these fits of rage that would leave me really... Um, nervous about when the next one would come right um but my mom and my dad split up when i was like two so they were only together like three years wow and then one of the things that definitely influenced my own um relationship understanding and my needs for validation was my mother got with um my stepfather who was the opposite of my father in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways he was this big my dad was very cerebral a commodities trader very kind of in his own head and not very physically dominant by any means Mm -hmm. and then she got with this gigantic silver back of a man (laughs) and then he was like the SWAT team squad leader the guy who would kick down the door with the shotgun uh, NCAA football and wrestling and as a manly a man physically as you could get so some part, and I've recognized this through, you know, a lot of introspection and ceremony, a lot of my own feeling was that, okay, the greatest woman in the world represented by my mother will leave the cerebral one mm-hmm. for the most physically dominant one. Mm. So that's been a pattern that I've had to become aware of that I needed to feel like I was the most physically dominant in order to be loved. Right. That's a very good observation. Yeah. So, uh, how much of a, of, of a factor do you think that's had on the development of on it and the the the, the 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 conditioning right is it, this mm-hmm. is a you know obviously a center f- where there's a lot of um, physical development going on yeah I mean I think it played a big role in my whole life mm-hmm. you know I mean I think that desire to be loved by the whoever was filling the role of the greatest woman in the world, the person who I was with, right? Like mm-hmm. the desire to be loved by them and being having that be conditional upon me being physically 
dominant and superior definitely yeah. was a driving force for me to keep pushing the boundaries in that way. Fortunately, it's also one of the ways that sport and training is also one of the ways that I can get out of my head, which is probably one of my biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. I inherited that from my father, a very a tendency to be caught in cerebral mental loops that are a form of deep suffering, really, until I can get embodied and get in flow and get actually grounded through my feet. Um, so that's also led me into yoga and led me into a lot of the other practices as well as finding the ways to escape the tyrant of the mind yeah, and, uh, and kind of get out of that. But so I think it's been both, um, both have been there, but I think for sure, you know, having the, you know, me putting the external validation from the women I was with trying to show me that I was worthy of love, right? you know, it w was definitely one of the driving forces that probably caused me to want to open up in the first place. Now, right. A lot of other things, the books I was reading, the, uh, my understanding of love not being possessed and love mm. being wild. And there was a lot of other factors in there, plus just the natural human tendency to desire the novelty yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was really, really overconfident and underestimating how much work would be in it for me. Yeah. I mean, I've been yeah. completely blown away by how challenging and how deep, deep the lessons have been from being in this open relationship and allowing my partner Whitney to have the freedom to be with men sexually and fall in love with them and, mm -hmm. and whatever, you know, her heart and body desired has mm -hmm. been, uh, has been permitted. And that's a, that's a hell of a journey, man. Yes, it is. And we're going to get into some of that. Cause these are, these are things I've worked through myself and, and they really do, uh, they take you to very deep places in yourself where, you 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 end up having to make decisions and i'm sure you've both figured this out that when you're in multiple partner relationships especially if there's a depth to them not just having you know a little fling here and there but as you develop a deeper connection you get to situations where you have to make a choice about certain things and there's no way you can make that choice without somebody else feeling wounded by the choice and that is it takes a you know, you really have to uh, learn to be in your center and it tests the depth of the love that each person has for the other in the relationship. So it can – and oftentimes there's no guarantee that anybody in these multiple partner relationships are at the same level of spiritual development, right? Someone may be very exotic and very beautiful and very willing to – make love to you and connect to you, but that may not reflect their psychic development, right? It may actually be uh, a way that they're medicating unresolved pain from their own development. And we don't know that until we get deep enough in to hit the challenges that trigger the awakening of what's driving this situation, right? So um, on my own side, my mother was – very, very uh, – you know, my father died, left my mother when I was uh, – I think I was three. She was 18. She had three kids and my dad took off. And, you know, I'm sharing this so that I can enjoy and, and engage the dialogue with you so we all can see each other's development. My father was a, a professional drag racer and a competitive dancer and he kept running away with his dance partners. And so uh, – and my mother – 
you know, she was young. She had me when she just turned 16, my sister when she was 17, my brother when she was 18. And, and once he left and he didn't give her any money, she had to work two eight-hour-a-day eight back-to-back waitressing jobs to pay a babysitter to take care of her. Uh, so, you know, I, I rarely got to see my mother except when she came home. And so my kind of imprint of my mother is someone who is always exhausted but loved us enough to sacrifice everything and anything to keep us – healthy and whole and alive. And so then she got married to my stepfather who, uh, as I imagine you've heard me talk about before, turned out to be a, a very brutal human being. And I watched my mother get beat up a lot and all of us got beat up a lot and hospital visits. And and so I, I, I saw a lot of polarity. You know, one minute they'd be obviously having sex and getting along and the next minute they'd just be in at war and, and it, the house was just damn scary to be in. And then there was a point where I'm quite sure my mother had a fling because she actually brought this guy and I was probably about 14 and he came to one of my motocross races and there was just a lot of intimate energy and I could feel the sexual charge between them and I also – happened to see my stepfather come home one day and confront this guy and after that he was gone he just disappeared he was a sort of a friend of my dad's but also someone my mother knew and he was sleeping in, in one of in a cabin outside where i slept and then all of a sudden they were gone so the point is for me i actually saw that whenever two people aren't getting their needs met and i later found out that my father uh, was quite had a uh, my stepfather had a sex addiction and he was quite heavy into drinking and pot and so there's probably a lot that went on on his side that my mother knew that I didn't knew which might have charged the relationship which could have been related to some of these fights but what I saw is that um, whenever people don't get what they need to feel safe in a relationship they generally will do one of two things they'll get it any way they can that feels the safest way based on what they know or they repress it and that le usually leads to illness of some kind like a nervous breakdown or a health crisis or something where ultimately people have to come care for them. You understand what I mean? Like if someone gets cancer, they become the center of attention. So I saw that a lot of the diseases of repression are actually an attempt to turn the tables so that the person who has had a hard time getting love in relationship defaults to a situation where they get love by being close to death or everyone else being so afraid that they have to save this person. So um, what I'm sharing just to stay in flow with you guys because I want this more to be a dialogue than some kind of a Q&A. Um, I think from a childhood experience, I saw that, that – Monogamous relationships are tough. I didn't have exposure to the tribal environment. I did see and intuit that it's very hard, more for men, I think, especially if kids are involved, to stay with one woman. I think the stronger, more capable, aggressive males, what we call alpha males, have the hardest time because they're the ones that are getting the most women wanting to engage them. Um, I noticed, for example, in my life, as I became more well-known and respected in my field, 
that women started making it more and more clear to me. I mean literally putting their hotel rooms in my pocket, grabbing my ass saying, if you want to have sex with me, I'd love to make love to you. So it, it became – Clear in my first marriage. Can you do an online course on how to get to that point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. If I had, if I, look, if Take I my money, Paul. <laughs> if I looked like you, I would have died in bed. Um, <laughs> this interview would not be happening. Um, but uh, the point being is, my first marriage with Sue, who is extremely beautiful. I mean, I I, I really fell in love with a gorgeous, athletic babe. But we both start. We started our relationship at sixteen, and I, I and as we matured, and then Paul Junior's morning, we were together seventeen years. I felt both of us under a lot of tension because we really both needed some variety. It was as though we missed out on our childhood because we mm -hmm. didn't have that. Right? It was like I'd only made love to maybe two or three other girls in my life before her, and then it was just this one person, and. Due to the way she related to me, if she wasn't getting her way, then she would shut off the sex valve. And so then I would go crazy because I needed – because my mother was a very physical lover, when a woman wasn't loving me back physically, I felt as though I I had lost my love. Like I I needed that physical connection and Sue figured out how to you know, move the chess piece. Oh, he really wants that sex, so we'll just shut that off and see if that gets his attention. And it actually left me feeling frustrated because I felt like I was giving my heart and soul and working very hard to support my family, but I wasn't getting any reward from the very woman I felt should be giving me the reward because I was devoted to her, right? So it, it actually made me angry. It made me frustrated. It made me sad. It made me confused. And so – then, of course, being an athlete and talking to all my buddies who were just shagging the shit out of everybody, you know, just like I'd be in the locker room here. I know this guy got laid three times last night. And, you know, I'm like, this is like hard to listen to. I'm like, you guys are living the life that I fantasize about. Of course, I was a younger man then and my testosterone blew my hair out of my head. But um, <laughs> to try to channel that when you're young is very hard, right? To contain the fire of the biology within us when you're an athletic go get it ass kicker guy, you want to conquer the woman thing the way you want to conquer the gym or the motocross race or whatever it is. And and so I found it uh, very challenging. So that first 17 years made me promise to myself I would never ever be in a committed relationship with a woman unless she knew right up front that I had to have the freedom to be intimate with other people and I knew I had to give that freedom to her as well. And so that's how I operated from then on. And that re really uh, – it caused a lot of relationships to break up. But I always knew it's better to break up the relationship now than to get too far down the road and get a kid involved and then realize it's not working. And I got that clear in the first relationship. So um, – A question I'd like to ask is how do you feel the ratio of monogamous relative to polyamorous or polygamous relationships would change if people did not have religious programming that biased them in either direction? In other words, what do you feel people's natural instinctual heart-centered tendencies are with intimate and potentially childbearing relationships? If you, if you understand the question, get rid of all the yeah. religious stuff. 
and just say, okay, what it would be like to live in a culture kind of like the Greco-Roman period where you love the way that it's natural for you. What do you think would do that would do to the ratio of monogamous, which is heavily monogamous in our culture on the surface at least, to multiple partner relationships? Yeah, I think I think obviously that's going to be a big difference in in the number there. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said uh, against religion when it comes to shame and guilt and things that that were all kind of brought forth through the teaching of fear. You know, yeah. to fear God, to fear these things, to fear sin, to fear doing wrong. Um, but past that even, I think, is the narrative that Wednesday Martin, who, who Aubrey and I have podcast with, has really kind of re, retold a different story through her book Untrue and a lot of the science that's come out on female sexuality. And I think that's that's the hard one to wrap our heads around is that whether you're monogamous or not, your woman wants to fuck and she wants to fuck other people too, whether yeah. she admits it or not. Like, mm-hmm. and that's that you don't have to go through with that. You can be committed and, and you can do monogamy and that's totally okay. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but to deny that human impulse or to say that that's only a male thing, yeah. that only men want novelty. It's complete bullshit. It is. I think that, that being one of the first things that would be unplugged would really shift. Um, and then I think further than that is, one of the issues that I've come across now is, is um, you know, when, when my wife and I read Sex at Dawn, it made sense to us, but it was like, yeah, that makes sense in a tribal scenario where you know everyone, there's 100 to 150 people involved and everyone raises the kids communally and it doesn't matter whose fucking kid it is because, every, you know, if I die, there's seven other dads there to, to look after my wife and son. Yeah. Um, we don't live in that society today. So no. I think... That would be the hang-up on how many people choose monogamy because everyone's looking for a deep soul connection. Yeah. And whether you do polyamory right or wrong can lead you down the path of actually finding a deep soul connection or just springing from one relationship to the next and saying, you know what? I didn't like this about her. She's out, but I got four other girls to work with. So why am I worried about that one? Yeah. I think the <clears> – I think the – Religion has been the backdrop for what has now been de-religiousized for the cultural programming of the fairy tale that we are supposed to be monogamous and we are supposed to, if you find the right person, you will never have needs and never have desires to want to have sex with somebody else, Mm -hmm. which is just wrong. It's just a bad cultural idea you know you talk about those archetypes those like imprints you know like we have these deep imprints that oh if we find the right person if you know you know if you find the right person you're going to be with them and you're going to be totally satisfied and it's going to be a fucking fairy tale (laughs) like it's just not it's just fairy tale (laughs) yeah yeah it's just not accurate no you know that's not how it is it's not that monogamy can't work but it's going to work as a willing sacrifice to decide that you're not going to choose to explore novelty and not going to choose that and you're going to you know, have a practice that drives you back to radical presence with the woman that you're with or the man that you're with. Yeah. And that's going to create the novelty is that almost psychedelic like presence that can come from when you're right there in the moment. Yeah. And like, so that's how monogamy can work as this conscious sacrifice, but it's not as some fairy tale that's naturally going to be effective. Mm -hmm. And I think religion did play a part in kind of creating that narrative, but I think the narrative has run away from all religion at this point. Yeah. And it's just now in the cultural programming. So I think the biggest thing that's going to happen is to unwind that cultural programming and say, look, if you look at the statistics, like Dr. Wednesday Martin's statistics, 
people are getting bored in the aggregate and this is mm-hmm. why everybody's cheating and this is why everybody's seeking novelty is because the novelty drives you into presence it drives you and it's not only hedonic tolerance but that thing which is new you know brings you to the present moment and that's where the fucking ecstasy lies the yeah ecstasy lies in being in the present moment being right there whether mm. you're making love or having dinner or talking or kissing or whatever it is yeah like being present is uh is where the magic is yeah and i'm going to get into that because i have some issues on the stages of development that we go through that i'll introduce while you were talking there i wrote a note elders you know one of the things that I feel has really crippled our culture particularly, um, not that it hasn't crippled other, others, is that with the loss of the tribal society and the changes into scientific materialism and capitalism where people try to fulfill their every um, emptiness through buying stuff right, or, or doing plastic surgery or whatever it might be. We we don't have a circle of elders around young people. And when I'm using young, I would say under 40, right? Uh, like I'm almost 60. And when I look at back when I was 40, I thought I knew a lot at 40. But compared to now, I was a dumb fuck at 40 compared to what I know now, right? You can – as you – I'm sure you've experienced, the more you learn, the more effectively you learn. You understand? So what it took you – what it took you your first 20 years to learn, your second 20 years, you probably learned two or three times that much because you know how to learn. and You don't stay with stuff that doesn't work so long because you know when it's time to change, right? Um, but I think that part of what's really causing the problem is and, – and this is going to the challenges of staying in a monogamous relationship – and not succumbing to the natural urges because you're honoring the relationship as more important than your biological instincts and urge or the uh, playfulness or the de- desire for novelty, whatever it might be. Don't you think if we had wise elders that had really processed that information and that those experiences – that we could go to as counselors and say, you know, I really love my wife, but I just like, I'm so in love with this girl I met at work and I just want to make love to her so bad. And I'm worried what that might do to my relationship or to my kids that they would be able to ground us in ways that most people don't get today. I mean, you you go to a pastor and he'll tell you, yeah, you're going to burn in hell if you do that. I don't call that counseling. I call that um, coercion and, 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 and more just immature approaches to immature challenges. But how do you feel – what, what might – how might your life be different, either of you, if you had a, a, a group of elders that you could go put anything on the table with them and it would not be surprising to them because they're 20, 30, 40 years ahead of you and just as willing to learn and grow as you had been? Yeah, I think there's there's no doubt that would certainly change the scope and not just in our relationships, but with all major life decisions and things like that, because it'd be a wealth of knowledge there. That said, a conversation I've had with Aubrey about open relationship before is the fact that psychedelics and plant teachers really are these ascended masters in this ancient technology where we can get all sorts of information. And it really doesn't matter which side of the coin you're on, if you believe it is the plant consciousness that's coming in externally, or if you believe it is just a chemical alteration in your brain that allows you to see with new perspective and different angles. This technology can be a way to really bridge the gap and get some deep downloads when it comes to uh, how to unpack cultural programming 
what is the right move for each of us as individuals and how best to, to see things from different angles with compassion and forgiveness and healing and to move forward through the world in love rather than in fear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, much of my downloads regarding this, when I've had these deep questions about do we do polyamory now or do we wait until our kids are all grown up and it's less of an issue there, um, they've come through in the plant medicine journeys very clear. And, and that's, again, this is for me, just like in the matrix, when Morpheus tells Neo, whatever the Oracle told you, that's for you and you alone. I truly believe that when it comes to plant medicines, but I think those really can be the thing we're missing now that we don't have tribes and we don't have a tribe of elders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they've definitely been some of my greatest teachers too. And, and it's, Almost, it's not that you can't see those teachings in the words of some of the other people who are writing, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, hearing Ram Das or hearing even Anthony DeMello, a guy recently, I was, I was reading his book, Awareness, which is phenomenal, but he talks about love in a way where, you know, love is like a rose. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've had this metaphor come to me, and this is the first time I've read it from somebody else, but I'm sure it's many places. But the rose doesn't decide which person it gives its scent to. It just gives it scent. Yeah. You know, it's like, here's my scent. And so that's the nature of love. Love is like the sun. It doesn't just shine on this shrub and this shrub and this shrub. Like love just loves. And this egoic desire to possess somebody else's love and say, no, 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 no. You only give your scent to me. You only give your sunshine to me. I mean, that was one of the initial things that got me on this path. It was like, all right. I understand that there is no biological imperative from a tribal standpoint. After reading Sex at Dawn, I realized like, okay, we were largely polyamorous in our, from our tribal roots and our tribal ancestry. And I understand love. I understand that love isn't meant to be possessed, that love is meant to be wild well, to the, a certain degree. The rose has thorns for those that try to possess it. Exactly. Those who try to trample it or possess it, that's its boundary and discretion, right? But its its flower is available for all. And those who try to cut it and put it in a vase and keep it on your fucking kitchen counter yeah. or keep it in your bedroom, mm-hmm. that thing is going to die. Well, it's it, to work with a metaphor, to cut it is to take its own life away. And I think that's what happens whenever we try to control our partner's to make them what we want them to be. Now, it's fairly natural, admittedly, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, if, if someone likes anal sex and their partner doesn't, but it's really an urge of yours, you're going to, most people will do their best to convince whoever the other one is to try it, right? So I don't think a lot of it's necessarily malicious. I think it's just part of an honest attempt for us to meet our needs. And if we're in a partnership, then well, who else are you going to do it with? That's what the partnership's for. I think the problem emerges when if we don't, if they don't succumb to our request, then we start becoming aggressive, manipulative, judgmental, caustic. And then that actually, if they do do it, then it's not a genuine act of love. It's really, it's a lesser evil than having to put up with you, which means now the relationship's being built on a false premise. It's not built on love. It's built on um, survival tactics. And it leads to, in my observation, um, it leads to um, – marriages that go very flat or relationships that go flat and people that stay in those relationships 
are often afraid that they won't get the kind of love they uh, think they should get because they're too old or they've got kids or they basically have lost their own sense of self-esteem to the point where they don't feel safe leaving the relationship. So you get this codependent, coexisting, and you see a lot of people after even five, eight, ten years of marriage don't even sleep in the same bed anymore. I was just coaching a couple the other day that are, you know, I think he's 40-something and she's a little older, but it was kind of funny because I was doing doing some marriage counseling with him and I said, you know, typically what happens when people are going through challenges just like you're going through is if they don't resolve them effectively, they end up sleeping in separate beds and their sex life goes flat and there was kind of a pause and a look at me like, um, we don't sleep in the same beds. So I go, well, there you go. You see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I want to bring something back, Kyle, to you uh, and – well, for all of us. But – and this is something I feel as a guy who's got a lot of experience with plant medicines and conducts ceremonies and uses it in healing because there's so many people that are confused and have their their kind of childlike fantasy ideas about what this stuff is. The plant medicines will certainly bring you awarenesses. They will show you paths. They will – help you see in deep into yourself so they can be helpful that way but the the challenge is the plant medicines don't help you actually with implementation you can have many great epiphanies in a medicine journey or even in the period after especially the couple weeks after but you often find the greatest challenge you know is not getting the awareness. Many people have the awareness they should love their wife or kids better, but within a day or two, they're back to the same idiot they were. What I feel is in, in, in tribal societies, wherever plant medicines were being handed out, there was a medicine man and a shaman there to guide the ceremony, and there was elders there so that you could have support implementing whatever the medicine teachers brought you, and those people already had a lot of experience working with these spiritual beings. So, um, I think I'm saying this to let people know you can get a lot of insights and a lot of clarity with plant medicines, but you can find yourself getting such powerful downloads and 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 myth busting downloads and culturally transforming downloads, and that journey can be a very strong hero's journey. And a lot of people don't have the support systems that we were referring to earlier to you know become that person the social structure we're in doesn't support growth out of the consensus norm wouldn't you agree like the average person's belief system is what i would call the center of gravity of society the plant teachers can take you two chakras higher than that in one journey and the higher you go the greater the pull is to not be that person you know imagine being someone who's 25 years old raised in a christian family programmed by christianity and all of a sudden they have um, experiences that lead them to the realization that maybe buddhism or taoism uh, or some other uh, philosophical sufism whatever is more congruent with their heart and they then go home with their new book in their hand and start announcing that and they're about to walk through the fires of hell. There is going to be the first trial on the hero's journey. And if they don't have somebody to counsel them on how to deal with that, because if you have not individuated to the point where you don't 
rely on mommy and daddy and brother and sisters and social group support for your own sense of self and identity, that's a, a really hard transition for people to make. So my point that I'm making is you guys are both quite strong individuals. I mean, you're both alpha males. You're capable of standing on your own two feet, saying what's on your mind, saying what you mean and meaning what you say, and then going out in the world and doing it, even if it bites. Like I go out in a rock garden and I know I can get hurt out there and I've left a lot of blood out there, but I don't ask anybody's forgiveness because I was silly. I just say I went out there to learn from the stone Buddhas and I take my medicine, I heal and I go back with more reverence and I now build bigger and better rock stacks, but I take longer time to do it and I pray a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm just making this statement as a general statement about plant medicines that you can get this download and you can have radical ideas, but you can find that the implementation process is really hard. And the trick is, is a lot of people refer back to the plant medicines for support to do that, which actually in my experience doesn't work very well because the plant medicines only show you a path. They don't walk you through the door. They amplify what's inside of you. They'll show you where you're stuck. They'll show you where the doorways are. And also, as I'm sure both of you would agree, you can get such massive downloads on plant medicine. You can think you're going back to heal something and come up with 14 new ideas that you now – and so what can happen is you can get scattered. And I see a lot of people doing a lot of journeys and they get scattered. They're Now they're scattered with their sex life. They're not sure who they're in love with. They're not sure whether they're going to start this company or they're going to uh, go start uh, – go to green – go work for Greenpeace or go off in the jungle and save the animals and they come to me – you know, almost schizophrenic, right? Um, what's your comments on that element of it? Yeah, I think this, and I, I think anybody who, you know, Arbor and I have I've done not as many ceremonies as you, but, but a fair amount as well. And I think it's it's very clear to see certain people, uh, you know, they come back and they, they look like they were in the same place they were two years ago. And they've yeah. been at the ceremony, you know, at every opportunity. And it's been a couple of years since you've gone, but they look like they're in the same spot, same intention, same draw, and they're not really growing from the experience. Um, that's, that's fairly common, unfortunately. I do feel like, you know, as you said, number one, it's not a panacea. It doesn't heal you. It doesn't fix you. It takes your own work. They can be incredible teachers if you do the work. And I think that really just comes back to like where where are your base systems in place for integration? Where are your grounding uh, principles in place? Like are you, are you doing Tai Chi? Are you doing Qigong? Do you have a daily meditation practice where you can get still and see what's coming up? Do you know how to tap into your own intuition? All these things are important. Journaling is super important. Yeah. Um, so you can take something from the experience and actually put it into your own words, but also – so you have a reference point to look back upon whatever that was and then start to implement it. But as you said, it, it won't walk it for you. Yeah. You have to walk it. And, you know, I'll give a, a perfect example of this. Um, it was during a mushroom ceremony where I was getting the download to start open relationship now and not later. And I had every question on, but what about this? And it yeah. would tell me a different thing. And then, well, what about the kids? Why well, I thought we were going to wait till they were older. And it was like, you're going to do it now. So you'll grow and you'll be better parents for it. And that's what you'll give them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then what about Natasha? She was in ceremony with me. Is she saying the same thing? No, she's not. Oh, if she's not seeing the same thing, how am I going to tell her? And one of my intentions was I wrote on this board, I communicate truth. 
Well, in perfect white chalkboard letters, it showed up in my visionary field. I communicate truth. Here you go. Pony up. Yep. You fucking communicate truth. You wrote it. Yeah, it's time. It's, it's time. Now, now here you go. Communicate your truth, right? Yeah. Knowing that was going to be a very hard conversation to have. And I think, um, you know, as with most experiences, when we have a little bit of experience leaning into the difficult situation and we come out of that alive, maybe not unscathed, maybe we've got some bumps and bruises and scarring, but we come out alive, we realize, hey, the more often that I lean into this hard stuff, the more often I can come out of this a better person for it. And I think it's it's really in those practices that train us to lean into the difficult and the challenging situations that have the ability to trickle into all parts of our life. And that goes into, you know, the cold tub to, uh, you know, super long qigong where your feet are starting to not feel good. And, you, you know, you're balancing back and forth between your heels and your toes and your biceps are getting tired from holding that beautiful little ball of light by your dentien. Like mm. all these practices can be challenging if you go to the depths that you can take them to, but all of them end up being beautiful elsewhere. So I think whatever those practices may be, it can be different for everybody. And these are, this is the low hanging fruit that's important for everyone, whether you're down with monogamy, whether you never want to do plant medicines, all these practices are available to all of us. And I think they're important prerequisites to these experiences. And I think they help us to, to ground ourselves coming out of it. So we can actually take this from the ethereal cosmic plane and bring it down to earth. Yeah, the the you know very well. I teach that very extensively, and I live it. Um, you know, those practices are not just uh, practices we need for multiple partner relationships, as you're saying. They're practices we need to make it through life. And you know, stillness is the axle around which motion um, evolves, right? And I think that with the meditative Tai Chi Qigong, what I call working in practices, what, what happens is that, you know, the axle, the axle on your car, the front axle never moves. It doesn't do anything, but it gets you everywhere. And without that axle, there is no destination, right? And the going to our center through these practices helps us have the clarity of mind to differentiate the fodder because, you know, minds like to throw all sorts of shit on the screen, right? It's like watching 500 televisions at once and you're getting so much data you can't tell which one to believe in. Um, and and um, I have another comment I want to make, but Aubrey, I see you've got some notes. I'd love to hear what you have to share. <clears throat> well, my notes was actually on uh, uh, a previous thing you said, and it was actually in your – it was actually in your anal sex. Uh, it was in your <laughs> anal sex metaphor, which wasn't really a metaphor, but like a situation where yeah. you're asking for something for your partner. Yeah. And what I what I realized is that the crucial thing here is like how you redeem that. Yeah. Is if your partner is doing that simply for you, mm-hmm. and it's out of and it's done with this kind of like resentment, like I'm doing you a favor. Yes. You know. That's then, what I was talking. Then about. at that point. It's out of alignment. It's yeah. out of balance. But if they're doing something that they don't like as an act of love and willingly yeah. choosing that as an act of love, yeah. then it redeems it, right? Because then it's their expression of love to you, yeah. which may come at a physical discomfort sacrifice to yeah. them. Let's say this is not a pleasurable activity for them. Yeah. But their choice as, to, uh, as a way to express love 
is is i think the exact same choice that should be done with monogamy it should be i'm choosing to be with you against my own desires which would be to go have sex with a couple other people but i'm choosing this as an act of love and have it be acknowledged yeah you know like wow thank you and then your partner saying like wow thank you for choosing to only be with me and Mm -hmm. not accessing your desires to be with somebody but instead there's this idea that we're just supposed to want to be with each other. So it's never a choice. It's never an act of love. It's never acknowledged. There's never any gratitude. So it's unredeemed and it builds resentment, you know? And so that was the thing that, you know, just wanted to make sure as I talk about this in the future to, to remember that that taking anything that you do as a choice and then having that choice expressed and then having your partner be grateful for it, yeah. like re- can redeem almost any, any compromise that you make yes and um and i think that's you know that's a pretty essential component to all of this is to go in willingly even if it's uncomfortable and say like oh yeah it's uncomfortable for me to spend time with the in-laws but i'm going to do this for you as an act of love not because it's expected yeah you know i think what's i i suspect you'll both agree with this um i think one of the biggest challenges we have worldwide today is we don't and like if you look at nonviolent communication, for example, and then you look at how we're conditioned culturally to communicate, there's not very good communication skills. People – we're not educated with good communication skills. And a lot of these challenges that we're talking about and that you just described, if we just communicated openly and honestly with each other, even when it's scary, if it's done in a way that's not a judgment – i.e. in nonviolent communication, I'm expressing my want, feeling, or need, not a you woulda, you shoulda, you coulda, you didn't, or if you don't do this, I'm going to leave you or whatever. That's violent communication. So actually, the more of that you get, the more repressed you get because you immediately begin to assume, oh, if I bring that up with him or her, it's going to be a fight and I'd rather just shut up. So I think a, a huge part of a healthy sex life in any relationship is effective communication. Wouldn't you agree? Oh no question. I mean, it's and that's come up for me in ceremony, but even outside of outside of plant medicines, I think that's it's the foundation upon which all relationships are built. Whether it's your best friend, or it's uh, somebody you work for, or somebody significant other, whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, it doesn't matter. Communication is what makes it all work or not work. Yeah. So for those of you listening, I would highly recommend the recommend the book. This is my go-to book because the same thing I did with Tai Chi and Qigong by synthesizing it down into a simple practice anybody could do that I call working in, this book does for nonviolent communication. And the book is called Nonviolent Communication, The Basics as I Know and Use Them by Wayland Myers, PhD. It is a badass book. It will fit right in your pocket. It's probably 70 pages long which is a, it's a quarter of a page. So what would that be? Like a quarter of uh, 70 is what, 20, uh, 20, but, but probably about the length of a chapter in a normal book, but it is potent as, and it gives you the absolute things you need to, I keep it right on my desk so that when I'm coaching people, I have it right there handy. And it's a, it's a very important resource. Now, this next one we're going to get into is about shadow and potential. I've studied the shadow quite a bit, as you can imagine. It's it's a major part of my work, and it's also been a major part of my own healing, as it is for all of us. And I know you guys have done a lot of work in that regard, and it's an everyday process. 
So I'm going to set the stage here by giving a little uh, preamble on the shadow. The shadow is a necessary byproduct of enculturation. Without it, there could be no semblance of order in culture, society, or tribe. With every culturally implied taboo, reflexively comes an option and the risk of freedom expressed as its complementary opposite. The cultural imposition to wear clothing that covers your sex organs at once produces the connotation or concept of freedom through nudity. The cultural and religious concept or dictate of anything other than monogamy being, being sinful immediately places the devil in multiple partner relationships. Depth, depth psychology shows us that wherever we repress because we are afraid to f- face it, something we've repressed, becomes active in our unconscious as a shadow complex of energy and information. That energy and information forms a living field within and around our bodies, and that field mirrors its energy and in formation, in the energy takes formation. So whatever you repress as a subtle concept of a thought, feeling, emotion is energy and information that then embodies itself in a formation such as disease, a tumor, um, Digestive trouble, eliminative trouble, uh, angina pectoris, high blood pressure, those are commonly expressions of repressions that are informing us that manifest in formation. High blood pressure is the formation. The tumor is the formation that is the embodiment of the information that's being repressed and the energy being repressed. With me Mm -hmm. so far? Okay. Um. And this is the source of disease, cancers, and tumors, etc., as I was saying. So, Aubrey and Kyle, could you each share some of, of uh, some experiences where you're, you were previously unconscious of fears or judgments of self or other or your own belief system that arose as you engaged in multiple partner relationships? <laughs> that doesn't oh, fucking man. tee it up. I don't yeah. know what does. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried to <laughs> set the tee just right. Slow pitch, underhanded softball <laughs> throw with Bo Jackson at the bat. Um, man, I would uh, let me, I will limit myself to, in my opinion, the most important lesson for me up to this point. Um, which thankfully uh, plant medicines have helped unpack. But, um, you know, it, when I say something like everything's a trigger, it, it doesn't mean that my partner triggers me or I partner my trigger. Or I, I trigger my partner. <laughs> <laughs> you partner your triggers too. <laughs> triggers yeah, too. yeah, we all do. You know, yeah. What it means is that I, if I have a trigger come up, there's, there's work that needs to be done there, right? Yeah. And so I remember the first... The first time uh, my wife was going to go out of town for three days with her boyfriend, um, they were going to fly to Vegas and the flight got canceled. And so I went ahead and I was like, look, I, you know, I've already done, I thought I had already done the work. I had already done the work to be okay with this and I want it to happen. So let me help pay you guys for a staycation. So I put him up at the W here in Austin and gave him a staycation. And the first two days were pretty much fine. But by day three, I fucking cracked mm. and I didn't understand where it was coming from. It was very hard for me to communicate nonviolently at that point. And, uh, you know, in an argument upon seeing my wife, which is really the only person in the world I wanted to see for those three days. Um, when I first saw her again, I couldn't handle it. And then, you know, for the first time in our relationship, I actually fled and 
I, that what I mean is I got in my car and tried to drive off during an argument. And it's funny, you know, Aubrey and I joked about this. It was a Prius. So the getaway, <laughs> the, the Batmobile was as fast. The getaway was pretty fucking slow. <laughs> she probably ran she faster run me and down. said, yeah. "Stop!" Mm-hmm. She could run me down. She's like, "Fuck you!" Yeah. You know. And there's a, you know neighbors are watching. It's broad daylight, and it was it was pretty bad. And I got about a mile away, and I was like, "Fuck! I need to turn around." But you know, I had seen this habit form um, in a previous relationship that I was in for, for six and a half years where anytime shit would hit the fan, I'd fucking up and leave. And I mean, uh, this is when I was living in Arizona, going to Arizona state, I would drive from Tempe, Arizona back to San Jose, California overnight. Like that's, that's the level of, let me get the fuck out of here that I had. And I had, I had kind of pieced that together from something I learned from my mother. When my parents would fight, she would leave for three or four days at a time and just go stay at a friend's house. And in that process, my dad would proceed to blame me for the argument and the mm. fact that my mom was gone. Mm. So some, some good, some really good programming in there. And, um, it had never come up in any heated argument with Natasha, with my wife. And I thought that I was pretty much over that. But the fact that I got sucked down the rabbit hole with such tunnel vision that I couldn't even see myself doing this, I realized very quickly, like, oh, there, shit, there's still more work there. And, um, you know, I came back. I apologized. We had a good talk. And uh, very calmly, we were able to, you know, because I was calm. Uh, and saw it kind of with a bird's eye view. I was able to calm her and we could have a, a good communication around why I felt triggered. But really what was uncovered for me with a 5-MeO-DMT trip later that week with my wife, I had a vision of my mom leaving. And I saw how much that imprinted abandonment on me. And I remember when I was 10 years old, my mom was going to go to work. And I stood in the driveway and sobbed for her to come back. Yes. And it was just – and she was – she – I mean – I saw that vision too, where you know the relived that memory, and my mom was so confused. Like, what do you mean? Why, I'm just going to work. Why are you? Why are you this upset? Because it was already built into me at that point, yes. right? And so seeing that happen and feeling the 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 guilt and the shame afterwards of you know you brought this up, and that's why your mom left. You know those kind of things. Um, it unpacked it in a way where I could not only see like, oh, okay, this is still here. This fear of abandonment and something I had spoken with you about on the podcast we did on living in 4D through the hero's journey was, um, you know, at the most depressed point of my life, I really felt like I would never find love and I never could be loved and that anybody I was with would never love me for who I am. Right. So all of these things I, I had attributed to Tosh, who is mommy figure in some sense, which yeah. I need to fucking unpack. Right. Yeah. But at the time it was, if, if, if mom leaves mother of bear wife to me, if she leaves, that's going to be problems. I'm going to be blamed for that. There's going to, it's going to not feel good when mom's gone. Mm-hmm. Right. If I leave no fucking big deal. Mm-hmm. Right. But if she leaves, it's a big deal. Yeah. And so seeing that for what it was, was truly one of the most eye opening things. But again, this takes the ability to want to dive in, there has to be a want and a desire and an intention to do the work. And then with that, having tools like the 5-MEO uh, Sonoran Desert Toad Elder to guide me through that experience and show me where it comes from. And then to take that forward with nonviolent communication and say, hey, this is what's going on in those circumstances. And, you know, thank you for staying by my side while I was working through my shit. Um not only does that help me level up, but it, it has brought us significantly closer together because 
you know, with that shadow uncovered, it's kind of hard to love someone fully when you're operating on a certain set of pre-programmed ideas about what a relationship means and how I should be in the relationship. And then to uncover that, you know, as our, as our friend Anahata says, you're basically, everyone has a blind spot, but you're able to move that blind spot back a little further. And as your awareness grows and self-awareness and discovery of know thyself, you truly can see with a greater vision. And I think that's certainly been the case, which is one example of many of the ways this ultimate ceremony of open relationship, the ultimate pressure leads into any cracks in the relationship and that whatever needs to get fixed, you, you pretty much have a screaming, you know, a, a screaming noise to say, fix me, fix me, fix me. This is fucked up here. Whereas, if you know, when I was monogamous, I could have gone through 30 years with her and never uncovered that. Yes. So I have a deep appreciation for that level of pressure. It's not only cracks in the relationship, it's any cracks in your own internal constitution, mm-hmm. right? Because relationship is such a uniquely intimate, personal reflection of your own inherent desires, tendencies, makeup, psychology, you know, framework, repressions, uh, challenges, traumas, like all of that gets expressed through relationships. So yes, it will highlight any, any kind of weakness in communication in your relationship. It'll, it'll put pressure on the cracks in your relationship itself, which mm-hmm. typically is communication more than anything mm-hmm. or any kind of resentments that might have built up. But really what it does too is highlight any kind of wounds that you might have, like yes. what Kyle was talking mm-hmm. about. And, and for me, or any desires for validation that were necessary, you know, so. You know, I look back and and think of, you know, for me, that choosing me as the sexual partner was, again, validating me as being worthy of love, as being, you know, masculine and being strong. And and that was this kind of thing. So when Whitney would choose me and I was chosen as the most masculine, the dominant, the one that was special, the one that she would be with, you know, that was all kind of woven in together into this inexorable piece. And then she started seeing a more physically aggressive lover than myself, someone who liked to really dabble in like the extreme ends of power exchange and dominance and submission. Mm -hmm. And she would come back and I would see the marks on her body from from that experience. And that was a moment where it just struck me like, you know, a thousand pound hammer right in that wound of, oh, if I'm not the most dominant one, she's going to leave me for the most dominant one. So Mm -hmm. it triggered all of my fear of not being worthy of love, of her leaving me just because she was having a sexual experience with someone who was acting more aggressively. And your mother went to a more dominant man. Right, exactly. So that's where that initial patterning was. That's what created the fissure. And then the open relationship was the hammer right on that fissure. And I remember crawling around on the ground in New York City. It was a wood floor and I think it was the Nomad Hotel. And I was crawling around and I was dry heaving like I was purging off a psychedelic and I was crying and sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> and uh, I don't pray that often, but I prayed that day. I should pray more. I was just going to say. I, yeah. <laughs> I prayed. I was like, just please help. You know, like, please, yeah. please help. And then, like a really clear message came through to me and it said, the sun does not judge itself by the shadows that it casts. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, whoa, that's very metaphorical, but very apropos to the situation. I'm judging myself by whatever Whitney is reflecting back to me, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I am actually the sun and my intention is to be love, then I don't need to judge myself by what 
who what partner she's having sex with or mm. what these are all shadows that the sun cast oh there's a tree here and it's casting a shadow on the ground that doesn't matter mm-hmm. what matters is who i am internally and anything that she does doesn't make me less or more worthy of love and so that was the first moment that i got to unpack that you mm-hmm. know and then i had another opportunity when whitney fell you know deeply in love with her current boyfriend and that was not a, so much a sexual thing that was more i mean the sex was of course a part of it but that was you know oh she was choosing him with her heart you know so he was somehow more worthy of love in some other way and and it was again a reflection upon my own my own lack of self-love my own areas of my own self-love that needed to be improved my own sovereignty and autonomy and mm-hmm. and feeling worthy of love and loving myself um is just another huge invitation for that and then in the absence of that in the pressure then all of the responses all of the issues like kyle's wanting to get in the car and run away for me it was getting really angry and exaggeratory and showing my pain or whatever whatever other pattern that i'd learned from childhood or learned that maybe worked in a previous relationship like all that shit comes out it just Mm. the pressure comes and all that squeaks out like a fart with someone standing on your stomach Mm -hmm. you know like something's gonna come out a little shit a little fart a little fucking whatever Mm. but eventually you know you can breathe and surrender to that and then become aware of it and actually work through it and i don't think i would have been able to work through any of this shit all of my own self-love stuff all of my own need for validation all of my own insecurities if it wasn't for that immense pressure Mm -hmm. that open relationship has put on me yeah it does squeeze the juice out of you doesn't it (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know like um i'm going to share a little bit of mine but i i also wanted to make another point you know the whole purpose of depth psychology as Jung developed it was individuation, which means to become a whole person. And really what we're describing here is finding, as you say, the cracks within us, the fissures within us. And that's where we have some sort of belief, conscious or unconscious, that we're, we're – whatever the belief is, it, it ultimately boils down to we're not whole unless – she doesn't see that person or she comes home exactly as you want her or you have the money that you think you need to have. I mean, there's a million ways we find the cracks in in the mirror of self. And, you know, I don't think you two would have any argument with the fact that we have a, a, a bit of a challenge, probably worldwide, but very much in the Western culture, that we have people at every age category that are still living out the lives of a child and have not done any legitimate inner work and who run to doctors with every ache and pain and try to sell that problem to a doctor and get it numbed out or cut out, never realizing that they're treating the symptom of an inability to be responsible for identifying and meeting their own needs to be sufficient in and unto themselves. And when I uh, and I'll give you an Osho quote for that. Osho said, "The beauty of love is that it never works." People get very confused by that. What he meant was, as long as you expect somebody else to love you, because you're not willing to love yourself, you will always be in a codependent, entangled relationship that is guaranteed to produce pain for these very reasons. To be able to love yourself enough to allow your partner to do what they need to do to find and become whole, to find themselves and become whole or do their own healing. And I'm sure Whitney's got her own process going on. Mm -hmm. Um, If she doesn't, then she's not from this universe. (laughs) Um, 
which could be a podcast in itself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so the issue I think that uh, multiple partner relationships accelerate our individuation because each person we interact with triggers our shadows, right? They trigger the, the reflexes that open our shadow up to bring it up out of the unconscious. You're describing an unconscious upheaval, right? You're describing getting in the car, driving away and realizing, oh my God, I'm living out my childhood and beliefs that aren't serving me right now. But you're not conscious till you're in the throes of it. And some people never get conscious then because what do they do? They run and drink a bunch of alcohol and numb it or they drug it out so they don't have to feel it. But then they go home and continue the battle, right? Until the whole thing either just goes stale or, or blows up. Um, a couple of things that happened to me initially was <laughs> sad as it is. Um, I started, I'd be in the middle of, making love to somebody and I would have this morbid fear come over me that I was going to burn in hell, that I was being judged by God. And this is long after I thought I'd healed that. Um, you know, I've studied religion, as both of you know, very extensively and and uh, I work on myself regularly, but I I was finding myself in the pleasures of sex but feeling – even though I had a clear communication with my wife, feeling I was abandoning her or I was being disrespectful to her, uh, you know, just a myriad of thoughts would just run through me and I would find it very hard to even stay erect because some of them were so painful that it was like I was caught. I was in a vice and part of me was being squeezed into the point of wanting to scream, yell, and run. And the other part of me was saying, what are you doing, you dumb fuck? You're, you're supposed to be the teacher of this. You're supposed to be the one that's stable inside. This person's going through every much of a shift in their way of relating as you are. They're, they've got their own process. And so it it took me a while to clear that and, and, you know, of course I knew where that was coming from, my childhood programming and my mother, you know, has a lot of, you know, my mother really has a hard time with, she'll, she'll say verbally, oh, you know, I'm, you do whatever you want to do, whatever, but her attitude and her behaviors and, and many other indicators show she still carries a hell of a lot of pain because my father abandoned her and ran off with his dance partner. So she sees the way I'm living she immediately assumes that Penny's absorbing the pain for all that and not being honest. And then she now sees me with two wives and then that triggers her even more. And for her, psychedelics are just absolute bullshit, you know. So <laughs> that's been a firewalk. And so, you know, my mother's very enlightened in some ways but still carries a hell of a lot of pain in other areas. And I think she's unconscious sometimes of how she – uh, reacts to these things and, and isn't open to discussion. That's another problem, right? When you want to discuss somebody, something like I love my mother deeply, but when I can't have a discussion and she's not listening, willing to listen or look at the evidence, scientific or otherwise, it, it, it really creates a, a, a very uh, cold environment where you have a hard time wrapping your hands around arms around somebody who has a block of ice in their chest and and just it's my way or no way and I'm your mother and you're you know you know mothers always think you're still a kid right I'm like mom I'm like a fucking 57 years old or whatever you know it's like <laughs> I've been around <laughs> um 
the other one, uh, I mean, there's many of them, but another one, I remember one time I was um, making love to a woman who was just very intelligent, very, very beautiful, um, just absolutely gorgeous woman and and I'm in the middle of making love to her and I'm feeling this fear. I felt I felt afraid I was going to drown in her. Uh, and the way what I mean by that is she was so absolutely stunningly beautiful. The kind that if you could look at her all day. I mean Playboy centerfold for perfect fit. I can't say too much about her because I want to protect her identity, but a very elite level athlete that is just carved out of God. And so we're deep in the throes of this thing and and she can feel that something's pulling away in me. And so I just I said to her, you know, this is what's happening inside of me. And um you know the amazing thing was is here she was kind of engaging me but i'm sort of more in the position of the wise elder the the leader of this experience but ultimately the tables turn and she's like i'm here to make love to you because i love you and i want to be with you and i'm i don't want anything from you i just want to share my love with you nothing more i don't expect anything from you just let's just make love and enjoy making love to each other and I, th- I thought it was such a, m- a magic moment where all of a sudden I became the student in this situation and got brought back into my center and was able to continue to make love and let it go. But, y- y- you know, I-, I put this in here because this is so powerful, right? The- these When you start having multiple partner relationships in a monogamous culture, it unearths every aspect of your programming from mommy and daddy to child to – and I'm sure you've found that even parts of yourselves coming up that you didn't think were connected to that experience, right? It, it's like a rototiller goes through the depth of your psyche and stirs up everything. Um, did you want to say something? No. Okay. Um, now, I wrote a note here while, while you were talking, Kyle. Um, if you don't address the shadow elements that come up, but you keep having the sex, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I mean <clears> – <throat> And when I say address it, I mean deal with it effectively. Yeah, there's there's some type of failure. Obviously, if it's something that's stomached within where I'm conscious of things coming up and I don't want to address them out of fear of the conversation or fear of the repercussions of the conversation, that can lead to disease and, and different – ways that information becomes information in the body, right? Yeah. But even outside of that, um, you know, and we see this in monogamy too, like the, the failure of the relationship, yes. right? And there is, and this is something that I had to reiterate to Natasha over and over again was like, this whole thing only works with the two of us doing it together. Yes. If we're both doing this together and we're both involved in it, otherwise there's no fucking point. Yeah. I'm not going to leave her for somebody else ever she's yeah. my partner right yeah. but that takes time to really trickle in you yeah. know it really takes time to settle down and settle in and it takes a lot of communication i spoke with you before about uh, the five love languages which is a good book you said you couldn't read it because of the christian undertones and i i certainly saw those but um you know you talked about your physical touch the need for physical touch in your first marriage both my wife and i 
uh, our love language is touch. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy for us to communicate how we love each other to one another. Something that was really far down the list and we're all a blend is words of affirmation. Mm. Yeah, but going through open relationship, what we found, we need fucking all the love languages. We need, we need quality time. We need words of affirmation where we continue to tell each other the reasons why we love each other, the reasons why they're important to us, and and the reasons that we want to keep this going, and the reasons we want to stay with one another through all the thick and thin. And, you know, again, the touch as well. Like, none of those things can be foregone and just thought of as like, well, you know, we have a couple of nights together in a row before I travel, and then we kind of filled our cups with those nights. It's like, no, I mean – at any point, whether I'm out of town or not, bridging the gap with some forms of, of different ways that I can show her love has been incredibly important and the same for myself. And it comes across initially as needy. And when it's needy, it's fucking gross because anybody who's clinging on and holding tight, like, oh, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. Don't go. Yeah. You know, like that, that's, that's very off-putting. It's yeah. repulsive, mm-hmm. right? But to catch that in ourselves – to catch that in ourselves and to have that awareness, sometimes it's all that's necessary. But just like psychedelics, the awareness isn't actually doing the damn thing. You still got to do it, right? So seeing that in ourselves and then coming to a place of how do I change that? Well, the change happens in me. It doesn't happen because she told me she loved me 16 times today. It happens when I love myself and no longer need the external love. Mm -hmm. And then in that, I can relax into the fact that, oh, if I love myself and I'm not living in fear – I can see that she loves me. So I don't need the, I don't, it doesn't become a need. It doesn't become a clingy thing. It becomes this state of allowing where I can, my cup is already full and everything extra that I feel from her is then just washing in with extra love. And the same can be said in reverse for her. And you have to, I know both of you uh, will probably experience this and have, would agree with it. And that is that in order for a multiple partner relationship to work, you really have to have genuine trust in your partner. You, you, you have to have trust in yourself and you have to have trust in them. Like you said, it doesn't matter how many times she says she loves you. But until you have enough trust in yourself to trust that she means what she says, you can look at her and say, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're just saying that or you're, you're the voice in your head. You know, in, Marsh, in, in Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, it's called being under the hat where you let all the jackals go off in your head, right? I call it jackaling off all the negative and <laughs> stuff that you shouldn't say, but it's part of the process of outgassing it, right? But it takes a deep level of commitment and trust in yourself to be able to really trust somebody else or you always project your own lack of trust onto that other person and create the illusion that they're not trustworthy. So it, it really does drive you. I think the, um, <clears throat> the invitation for all of this is to not be loved but to be love, right? Like that's, that's really the objective and I think part of the – you know, when I talk to people, like the reason to get into this is yes, it can teach you things about yourself, but this is a, if you're taking this on as a choice to become the best version of yourself, which to me at the hierarchy of that is to be love, be love expressed, Mm -hmm. you know, somatically and Mm -hmm. mentally and emotionally and spiritually to actually be love. And mm-hmm. so everything else that's not love needs to be exposed and brought into awareness. All those mm-hmm. other things, what's the opposite of love? Delusion, fear, ignorance, mm-hmm. things we were ignorant of, the things that we couldn't see, Indifferent. the things that we were scared of. Yeah. 
So like all of those, all of those elements need to get brought to the surface. So if you really want to endeavor, you know, something like that, then this is one of the pathways, one of the only pathways that I know of that can really drive that home because, you know, the, the psychedelics and the plant medicines are really good at, at highlighting things, but often it comes in, in metaphors and it mm-hmm. comes in poetic, certain ways. Poetic yeah. expression. Exactly. And so <clears throat> that's really important, but combining that with like the tangible, physical, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what's coming up. This is how I'm actually reacting when mm-hmm. being put under pressure. You know, that's, I think, uh, an important element. And then you can go to the books and the, and the other, you know, text and actually see and draw references and, and conclusions from those that you might not have even seen before because of your own experience and because of the way that you've been able to navigate. So to me, it's just the, this is the ultimate path to, you know, um, achieving my ultimate mission, which is to be, be love as much as I can be love. I agree. And that's a, you know, saintly project for all of us. Um, Two comments come to me. One, many people hear what you're saying to become love, to be love. And it becomes very cliche when people say things like that. But I think everybody at this table knows that becoming love means becoming a sacrifice. Love sacrifices everything. Think of any real love that doesn't come with sacrifice. Can you? Well, you sacrifice, but you also gain everything. Well, yes, but the the point is kind of like the paradox of surrender. Yeah, exactly. Look, when we sacrifice a human or an animal in a sacrificial ceremony, that thing dies. That person dies. They are on the fire of sacrifice. And that is love. There is a sacrifice. And it might be um, – the sacrifice could be that your partner falls in love with someone and leaves and marries them. But the agreement in the beginning was we're not going to do that. We're going to stay committed to our marriage and our relationship, but we're going to go out and explore with the agreement that we – always come back together. Now, things often start out that way, but don't work out that way. And that we'll get to in a minute too. But there is, I have never in my life seen or experienced a depth of love that did not come without some kind of sacrifice. And I think our culture has a sort of a child, almost candy-coated concept of love, that somebody that loves you does things for you. Someone that loves you makes your life easy. Somebody that loves you gives you money, you know. But that that's a very, very um, elementary school aspect of love, right? Look, I, I love what I do. I love my my vocation, my profession, my the Czech Institute. But I have had to sacrifice my fucking everything. I've had to sacrifice tons of time, energy. Uh, there was a time several years back where the Institute, um, the, the, when the 2007, I think it was stock market, 2008, whatever stock market crash came, uh, the Institute was 
very low on money, and in order to pay the instructors, I had to give up my paycheck to keep the instructors paid and to try to keep the institute alive. And ultimately, it got to the point where I, the institute owed me $500,000 for all the classes that I taught, but they couldn't pay me for it because if they did, they couldn't pay staff and instructors, which would have debilitated the ability for it to survive. And it got to the point where Penny and our then business manager came to me and said, we need you to write this off because we can't borrow any money from the bank to grow the business with this $500,000 debt on the book to you. I'm like, I mean, that was a day I I really felt, you know, sad. Um, you know, to me, that was money that I could use to stabilize the family outside of the business, like my own family. It was money I could use. I, w- I really needed a break from work. I wanted to take a year off and I really was going to go join a Zen monastery for a year because I was just so tired of the challenges of the world and people and everything else. And so at that moment, like all sorts of things shook in me. But out of love, I said, fine. And I just said, I trust you, great spirit. You got me here. You know, but I'm just simply making the point that there are no guarantees. We we can make a committed agreements with people, but to the degree that we aren't brave enough to sacrifice, then those committed agreements become very, very painful if they don't work out. And that's when the other side of the coin of love comes up. That's where we really have to let ourselves be eaten a little bit or put on the fire as a sacrifice. And, you know, the old saying, if you love them, let them go. If it, if you really love somebody, then you love the fact that they're happy. You love the fact that they're living more fully than they could live with us. And that's quite a transition. That's where we really find out um, where our love was more selfish than we actually realized or where we were maybe had more control strategies working in our unconscious than we realized. And so sometimes I think to really become love, we have to be brave enough to take the firewalk. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Always, because everything that's not love has to burn, and everything that's not, <laughs> and as everything that's not love burns, it hurts. Yeah, because that's the me, that's the ego, that's the you're doing this to me, you're doing this for me, you're doing this. Blah. The love, love is just the awareness and the presence of being love in that moment, right? And everything else that burns is all of the ideas about it, and all of the attachments to it, and all of the other things. And fuck that stuff hurts. We've kind of covered this next one but i'll share it anyhow and if there's anything you want to share then feel free um i'm 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 getting the warning we're running short on time so i want to jump through this um because each shadow entanglement within us tends to fixate energy and information when we heal any such complex by expanding our awareness giving ourselves and others empathy and compassion and releasing ourselves from the bondage of guilt and shame a tremendous amount of energy is released into potential Each step of the way, healing becomes more natural and more efficient. We gain more freedom and free will. Could each of you share experiences from multiple partner relationships where you found the gold at the end of the rainbow of the shadow, pain, and beliefs? So once you healed something, what happened with that energy? What happened with the entangled energy and information that allowed you? What did it become after that? Yeah, I can. I mean, just speaking to the the thing that I've already brought up here with abandonment is, um, I think as I 
has actually became aware of that and started doing the work to release that and communicating more about it and seeing from really all angles where it was coming from and the fallacy that when Tosh leaves, I'm in trouble, it's going to be all bad. Um, it just allowed me to to love a little deeper. It also saw, allowed me to see where some of my scars had come from and to acknowledge them. Uh, and in that, you know, you talked about trust and faith and belief in the relationship. I have all of that. And it because I'm doing the work to heal my own self from my own traumas and, and you know, shed light on the shadow, it be, then becomes so much easier to actually remain present and in love with myself and with Natasha. Yeah. So that, that right there is just, I mean, as you, as you talked about with how we learn in the first 20 years versus the second 20 versus the third 20, it's become more efficient for me now to work through any challenges that come, come mm-hmm. up because of the fact that I've, I've done some of the deeper work within that field. You're good developing a skill set. Yeah. And there's, there's, I mean, there's no doubt about it, but one thing that you brought up before, and I, I want Ob to talk a bit about this, is this concept of compersion. Of what? Compersion. So compersion is, is you know, whereas compassion is I feel your pain. Yes. Compersion is I feel your joy. I feel oh, your good. love, mm-hmm. right? And <clears throat> that concept to me was, I understood it completely on paper. But again, you go through these things and it's a whole different thing to walk through the fire. And I feel like the more work that I've done on myself to uncover where my shit is, the easier it is for me to actually truly have compersion. So when you think of that ultimate sacrifice of by opening up this door, my partner may walk out and never come back. Yeah, That is a real possibility. But in that, if I truly embody compersion, I want the very best for Natasha. I want her to get the most out of life, to have the most enjoyment, the most fulfillment on every level, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And I want to give that to her whether that means giving it to her from me or giving it to her by allowing her to walk away and find something better. That's all there. And to truly understand that, I'm not saying that would be fucking easy. It damn sure wouldn't. I'm not going to lie. But at the same time, I think that is the ultimate act of compersion. Yeah. To knowingly say, you can go on and you still have my support. You still have my love. You still have a financial commitment to be dad. You know, and to be in my son's life, to be a dad more than just fucking paying the bills. Yeah. I'm still going to be there no matter what, even if it's hard. Yeah. That is the sacrifice of being love. You know, it's like you're, you give up, you give up your rights and your privileges to get something in return for love because your love is the love that you are is its own reward. The love that you give is its own reward. Your act of love to Natasha doesn't require anything to come back, even for her to sleep in your bed. Your act of love is is the love itself, is the gift itself. And that so in the process of getting there, the sacrifices hurt a lot. And then as, when you get to that arrival, you know, and you can feel compersion and you can feel yourself as that force of love, then the sacrifices all disappear. It's like the resistance up until the moment of surrender and then the bliss of the when you actually let go and surrender, right? Yeah. It's like the resistance up until the point where you're able to be love and love without any of those um, necessities coming back your way. Yeah. Well, all of that resistance, all of that time is really painful and really challenging. But mm-hmm. then when you make it there, then you're like, oh, shit. 
Like I really do just want you to be happy and, and mm-hmm. my wanting you to be happy actually makes me happy. Yeah. And that's the only thing that I ever needed. I just needed to love myself, you know, and feel love myself. And that's the, that's really all that I ever, ever need. And that's yeah. the way to, this is the way to teach you. I am. Um, have you guys found, I know I have that as I've grown and matured and worked through a lot of these, everything we're talking about, and then, you know, we're doing a lot of talk about our own shadows, but there's also the shadows in all the people that we're intimate with. And then there's the issues of them interacting with each other, right? I have two wives. Fortunately, they're highly compatible, and it took an act of God to put the three of us together in a way that we do communicate and do work through things. But I've had many um multiple partner relationships where women started going at each other and trying to control to who gets what or getting territorial, which can be very tricky. So one of the things I'm I'm throwing on the table for everybody listening is that a lot of our conversations have been about our own internal process, but you also have to be willing to be present with everyone you're with in a relationship and not everybody has a toolkit. And not everybody's ready for the tools that we want to pass on to them. Some people are very, shall we say, uh, trapped in or addicted to their identity or their neediness or their uh, will, desire to control. So one of the things that's happened to me um, on several occasions, I'm curious if you guys have had to work through this. I'm very clear when I get into an intimate relationship with somebody. Now, I've narrowed it down to the two and I've learned enough because after 20 – well. Uh, see 17 22 years seven years ago what's that eight 16 18 years of working multiple partner relationships and then i realized it was just more stress than i wanted to manage and i wanted to just keep it to the two women that i wanted to devote my life to because i felt that was the two people i wanted to really grow the depth of myself with because i love them both enough to do the work and they demonstrated the willingness to work with me but one of the things that's happened is I've had women say, oh, yes, I agree with you. I totally – I understand everything you're saying. You're married. Dot, dot, you know, you're not going to leave your wife. That's okay. But then it doesn't take long before the control strategies start coming. And then they're trying to figure out how to soft sell you or secretly sell you into being one with them because ultimately behind their agreement was the idea that I just work on him. If I give him enough sex, give him enough love and butter him up enough – I can pry him away from that woman and have him all to myself and I've had to, I've had to cut several relationships off once those strategies started coming out and it was clear to me and I've also had women start behaving toward Penny in ways that were not representative of the agreement and the harmony that I have to have in relationship and as soon as I see that that's you know that the buck stops right there we either clear that or we have to let go of this relationship because it, it I cannot do anything that's going to damage the honesty and the stability that I have with Penny. Have you run into these challenges? Yeah. I mean, I think really one of the, we don't have a whole lot of rules. We have some in place that I think are important. Uh, They have to be, our partners need to be friends with, if I have a a girlfriend, she needs to be friends with my wife and vice versa. And I'm thankfully I'm very close with her boyfriend. He's a Mm -hmm. fucking great guy. Um, Outside of that really is this, a willingness to grow and a willingness to work on ourselves. And that obviously goes for my wife and I, but 
past that, our partners, whoever we bring into the mix, it's it would be very hard to find somebody who is cool with open relationship and attractive and living in Austin who also is on the same level of us in terms of self-work, psychedelic ceremonies, all of these things. So th- that's not a requirement or a prerequisite, but what is is the willingness to try those things, the willingness yeah. to do things like meditation or Tai Chi, uh, some form of self-reflection. Yeah. And, of course, across the board, communication. So if we can communicate openly and honestly and bring stuff up, that that really is the defining piece there. You know, our friend Dr. Dan Engel lived in uh, a commune with, I think, five couples and four kids. And two of the people there were licensed psychotherapists. And twice a week, they would have uh, an airing of grievances to, to steal one from Seinfeld, where they would all communicate at a level of 100 with radical honesty and just get it out. So they weren't holding on to this shit as the weeks went on. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can be incredibly important if those prerequisites aren't met or if there becomes a failure in communication or someone pulls away. Um, I think that just comes down back down to my wife and I both being very clear and centered in our own selves. So doing our own work with meditation and getting to a place where we can be able to see things with a bird's eye view. And then from there saying, all right, this is going to work if, and it's not going to work if, and leaving the decision up to our partners. Yeah. I've had every, <laughs> we've had every type of situation and made every type of mistake. Yeah. You know, honestly. And, um, it's, there's some people who are, you know, everybody seems to be willing to evolve, but at some point, you know, we've had people who've, you know, kind of thrown their own self, hit their own self-destruct button and, yeah. and just kind of tried to implode the situation because they couldn't handle it. We've yeah. had, you know, other situations where people are definitely willing to go on that path of growth, but the path is just not quite fast enough to catch up to the speed of where it needs to be to yeah. be in accord with the relationship and the yeah. depth of feelings. Um, and then we've had more synchronous experiences. But I think when I look at when I look at what the best model is, um, I think actually Kyle has one of the best examples that I've seen in practice because his relationship with Christian and the virtuous cycle of that whole partnership is so healthy that I think that's a good model because every person in that triad, you know, him, Christian and Tasha contributes to the well-being of the totality of all of them. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately the key, you know, because mm-hmm. if you have any partner that's that's in a in a taking kind of mentality yeah. where they're taking more than they're providing, yeah. then it's going to create discord. It's going to create resentment. And yeah. I think that's the that's the fundamental thing. So whether that's overt or covert, you yeah. know, either way, it's going to create a create an issue. But to see a working model of an authentic virtuous cycle um, was really great because I think honestly, you know, maybe the best that Whitney and I ever got to is, uh, is neutral, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, really like, okay, things are clean, mm-hmm. you know, but not necessarily virtuous, you know, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily nobody, not everybody's supporting each other right. in the way that, that they potentially could. Yeah. Um, so I think clean is a necessity mm-hmm. and then virtuous should be the goal. Something yeah. that's additive yes. know, to the whole totality. I have one important last question. I want to share something very important, I feel, from my own experience. And here's what it is. 
you know, I, I had a 17-year marriage. I've been married to Penny for 22 years and Penny and I have walked through hell together. You know, I like to quote Jung, no tree can grow to heaven till its roots reach to hell. And Penny and I have walked through hell together. We've been through everything together. I've shared everything with her. Um, I know how deep a relationship can grow and 22 years of working at it together and I know there's still more growth for us because we keep coming into the – not only the engagements of ourselves or each other but the engagements you come into with life. When you run a big business, you know it. it's like a very strong multiple relationship, multiple partner because you're in business with lots of people, right? So the same spiritual growth is going on. It's just you know disguised in the form of a business. So it's a, it's, it might not be intimate sexually but it's very intimate in other ways, right? There's – you know needs that need to be met there's responsibilities and so you see the same kind of triggering process going on and we have to breathe through it but what i've found is that in multiple partner relationships it's kind of like if if your optimum spiritual growth as a metaphor is if we're thinking of it as drilling for water like i've drilled 300 feet deep with penny and I can still keep drilling with her. But a lot of these multiple partner relationships, because they're not handled the way we're talking about, you end up only drilling 30 feet, pulling your rod up, running to the next one, having some good sex, you know, hanging out, going to movies, doing psychedelics. And then as soon as you hit some real challenges, you pull the rod up. And so I see a lot of people over the years, they're just drilling 30-foot wells everywhere, but the water table's down at 300 feet. So how do you guys feel how are you working yourself to make sure that you don't get caught in drilling shallow wells that could limit your own spiritual growth and development that takes a committed long-term relationship to really get into even with one person? Yeah, I think first I have to the paint the the picture of what my wife and I are trying to do and what we have done and been fortunate enough to to receive the gift of Christian, who I think is an awesome guy, is to create what Aubrey talks about when we want to recreate tribe. So what does tribe 2.0 look like? And I think, you know, in that, and it's something that you talked about with me the last time I was I was staying at your place in San Diego. Was, you know, if I go out and really try to find and sift through and draw this in and, and pull this into my life, I'll be searching with my dick. Yeah. But if I allow source to guide me, then mm -hmm. I'll wind up finding my Angie or yes. whatever that case is where I can have a really unique and awesome person come into the situation that fits seamlessly. And that won't come with there's, you know, I'd be a fucking retard to think that, sorry, that's a bad word, not the F word, but the R word uh, <laughs> these days. I would be, I would, I would be missing the mark if I thought that wouldn't come with its own unique challenges and um, ways to progress through that. But the fact remains that I think being very mindful about the people we select to bring into our situation uh, really does make a difference. And there's no doubt that's already been the case and something that we've really had to to think about because it's not just her and I, it's Natasha, I, and Bear. Mm -hmm. And whoever we're bringing into the mix is going to have an energetic exchange at the bare minimum with our son and yes. any other children that we have. So bringing in people in that tribe-like mentality who will remain as aunties and uncles and influences in our children's life, it, it takes a greater deal of character in terms of what I want to try to accomplish. It's not to be said that it can't happen. It already has with, with Christian. So mm -hmm. it is just a matter of, for me, um, being patient and, and working on myself 
more than anything is just continuing to do my own work and continuing to focus on uh, the things that I can change in my own life for the better. And mm-hmm. as if I keep just staying the course there, I know everything else as with business or relationship or extra children or any of these things, they'll all fall into place with perfect timing. Yeah. I think no, I want to make sure you get time, but I just want to say my experience is we really have to be clear and in harmony with the values that hold the relationship together. A lot of young people dive into this and they're driven by their sexual desires and that's really what these multiple partner relationships are built on. But what we're, what we're really talking about is not multiple partner sex, multiple partner relationships and that's built on values. And if the values aren't harmonized, if everyone in the group, triad, whatever you want, quad, whatever your game is, if those values aren't inherently accepted by everybody, it usually just leads to a long string of short-term visitations, a little passionate sex followed by some wild, angry blow-ups, someone steaming off, and you know you know how that the fireworks go off, and then you just keep going through that cycle. I think values is critical. I'd love to hear your comment. <clears throat> well, I think that's the. I think for me, it's the only clarification on that would be is that. Some some wells do have the value that they're supposed to have at 30 feet. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone is destined to be a 300 foot well. You mm-hmm. know, like some of the men that Whitney has seen. You know, like the example I gave, the one who is very physically dominant. That was an interesting experience for her, and a very valuable experience for me. Painful, but extremely yeah. valuable. That wasn't meant to be 300 feet. It was a rocky 30 feet. It was a rocky 30 feet that needed to happen, right? Yeah. And that was a that was a thing. And there's been other relationships that I've had whose depth was inherently shorter but the value was invaluable really mm-hmm. and i think so it's the combination of recognizing that not everyone needs to go the distance to yeah. have the value that some and that that'll allow you also the freedom to to transition if it's like oh we've gotten the value you yeah. know my my work here is done and this our work here is done in this relationship yeah and that'll give you the freedom to transition on but yeah if you're avoiding the depths by just going shallow with everybody you're missing the mark. Yeah, that's, that's what I was really – And that's not going to you know, serve you or your future self or your relationships yeah, at all. That's really what I wanted to highlight. And, and you know, because I have had uh, two long-term marriages and there's uh, – what I wanted to get into but we don't have time is that there's we, – we relate differently as we mature in a relationship. We see, feel and experience things that we could not have seen five years or ten years earlier. Yeah. So I think it's important for all of us – as adults to realize that in order to really come to know love in its depths, we have to go deep with it, which is commitment and yep. time, right? You have to stick in and, you know, work through it. So what a pleasure. And I yeah, hope brother. all of you that listen gain from this because as you can hear, there's uh, plenty of blood on the table from being aggressive with the roses and learning to value the beauty and the love and be empathetic and compassionate. First, we have to do that for ourselves because if we don't do it for ourselves, we can't effectively do it for other people or it's just masquerading. And uh, so thank you, Kyle, and thank you, Aubrey. What a pleasure. And and I just want to say I really uh, deeply appreciate the honesty and the depth with you guys that you guys go about life at. I Whenever I come here to visit you guys, I – the first time I came to Onnit and Penny 
uh, and Angie said, well, what was it like at on? And I said, you know, it was like being around a bunch of people that I could hang out with. <laughs> I was like, finally, I found a, I had to go all the way to Texas to find a bunch of Californians <laughs> that I could hang out with, right? And so uh, I really appreciate, and I know that both of your journeys is, they don't come without challenges, right? Your pioneers, your leaders. And so um, my blessings to both of you and, um, Let's do this more. Let's do it. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I love you, brother. Thank, Thank you, you for too. all your teachings and all your wisdom and all your friendship and all your support and Thank through you. everything. Deeply appreciate it. I, I love sharing with you guys. So, oh, blessings uh-huh. to all of you. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guests, Kyle Kingsbury and Aubrey Marcus. You can listen to both Aubrey and Kyle on their own podcasts, the Aubrey Marcus podcast and the Human Optimization Hour, both available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Follow Aubrey on Instagram and Twitter at Aubrey Marcus and Kyle at Kingsboo. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.